Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Paddock Pass Podcast. I am your host, Jensen Beeler of Asphalt and Rubber, and joining me today is Mr. World Superbike, Stephen English. I'll tell you what, it must be a special occasion and a special show if Jensen Beeler has joined us. I know, it is a special show. We are going to take a preview, a look at the upcoming Suzuka 8 Hours. Uh, Steve, this is a race that is near and dear to both of our hearts. Um quite frankly, doesn't get as much play in the United States and, and Europe as I think it should. But for the Japanese manufacturers, this is it. This is the one they want to win. Yeah, for a long time, it was win Suzuka eight hours. And then the next target was to win the 500 Grand Prix Championship. That's why you used to always get McDoon racing at it, Gardner, Schwantz, whoever you want to look at. All of the top riders on factory Japanese contract always had to race the eight hours as well. Around about the turn of the century, that seemed to lose a little bit of its luster. Took a long time really to get it back to where there was a big crowd coming to the eight hours in terms of riders from different championships. But we're back to that now. We've had MotoGP riders the last few years, a lot of the world superbike riders. And this year we've got pretty packed grid again. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch the progression or or I should say maybe the resurgence of this race. Um, it seems like the, the Japanese manufacturers are taking it more seriously than they have in, say, the last... 10 years or so and have really redoubled their efforts to bring out their top riders from the various uh, world championships to to win this because there's a lot of bragging rights on, on the line for them. Yeah, and one of the biggest changes we saw was I think it was 2014, Casey Stoner came back. He was paired up with, I want to say he was on the same team as Nicky Hayden. And it was one of those races where suddenly there was this massive level of interest in the eight hours. And year on year from that point on, there's been... Big riders from MotoGP coming over to do it. Jack Miller's raced it a few years ago. The last couple of years, we had Nakagami. And obviously, we've seen what he can do in MotoGP this year. But uh, tons of riders from World Superbikes. When you look at this year's field, we've got uh, Jonathan Ray, the reigning world championship, championship leader as well. Alex Lowe's, Michael Vandermark, Leon Haslam's there in a Kawasaki. And uh, just a host of riders up and down from even the super sport class over for it as well. Yeah, uh, we should remind the listeners the Suzuki 8-Hour is a part of the FIM Endurance World Championship. Um, it's an interesting round, though, and it kind of sets itself apart from the rest of the the races in that in that series because, one, because they're obviously the prestige and the importance for the Japanese manufacturers, but also we see a lot of specialty teams coming out of the woodworks. We see a lot of specialty bikes. Um, we get kind of a, a taste and a preview of what's to come because... Truthfully, Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, Kawasaki, they all they kind of use it as a, a point of development. And you can see kind of what they're working on for the future by what they bring. Yeah, and you can also see who's going to be working on them as well by their fortunes. If you don't win the eight hours, you can expect P45 the next day whenever you get into your office because this is still the biggest race of the year for the Japanese manufacturers. When you go to the race and you look out from pit lane onto the grandstand, you've got your green section for Kawasaki, your blue section for Yamaha, the red for Honda, and uh, then the Yoshimura Suzuki fans as well. And Everyone knows the pressure that's being put onto each of those manufacturers to get the best result possible. And even whenever the eight hours was struggling a little bit for getting the recognition outside of Japan that it probably warranted, it was still a case that that was the one race everyone had to win if you wanted to make sure you could keep your job. And that's the same for riders as well. If you can win the eight hours, it goes a long way to papering over the cracks of an up and down season or any issues you're having. Yeah, I don't think there's a better instance or example for that than what we've seen with with Yamaha. 
bringing out the uh, Michael Vandermark, bringing out Alex Lowe's, bringing out um, bringing out Bradley Smith, bringing out Paul Spargo. Arguably, when those teams weren't doing maybe up to their potential, but winning at Suzuka now four times in a row, looking for a fifth win. I don't think any manufacturer is more happy with the results than, than Yamaha. Yeah, and if you want to see how important it is for them as well, this year's bike is the Tech 21 bike. And uh, it's the same livery that was used, I think it was 25 years ago at the 8 Hours, one of the most historic color schemes we've seen at the 8 Hours. Alex Lowe's is a Kenny Roberts replica helmet for the weekend as well. It's all about trying to hark back to the real glory days of of uh, Yamaha because that's how important this race is for them again this year this is the chance to win five in a row you mentioned that their gents whenever they brought over Espagaro and Smith that was as a direct result of uh, Honda bringing in Casey Stoner and Nicky Hayden and just by having that change suddenly it meant that all the manufacturers took this race a lot more seriously Kevin Schwantz came back for a comeback for Suzuki Uh, you know it was it was crazy but it showed that the eight hours was back and it really was a case of coming back with a bang just like that and if it had taken anything else I think it would have taken something massive like Valentino Rossi deciding to race it for Yamaha but just by having the big story of Stoner coming back it created massive interest pretty much in every paddock just to see what Stoner was like. Everyone was kind of wondering, you know, how good is he still going to be to jump onto a race bike and be able to perform well? Obviously enough in the race, Casey ended up retiring. He His throttle stuck open and I think he broke broke his leg in the crash. And uh, He broke something. I can't recall off the top of my head if it was uh, an arm or a leg, but it was a bad result and bad day at the office for him. That kind of ended any of his kind of one-off races too. Yeah, and that was the big shame of it because I think everyone would love to see someone like Casey coming back to do those kind of events, you know, and it's also whether or not they're the kind of events that he'd like to do more of where it's one-off. You can also limit an awful lot of the media appearances. You can limit an awful lot to basically have it just where it's riding the bike. So it is an event that can be quite beneficial. And if you're able to go out and win it, Honda or whoever it is will sign off the checks if it means winning the races because that's still how important this race is. Yeah. Uh, Steve, looking into this year's edition, I have to ask the most obvious question. Will this be year number five for Yamaha? Are they the team to beat? You're the king until you're not. And Yamaha, for four years in a row, haven't had the fastest bike. They haven't been the fastest in the pits. They haven't necessarily had the fastest riders or the fastest outright lap times but they've been able to have the most complete package. And that's what Suzuka is all about. Like we'll talk a little bit about some of the pace that we've seen in testing so far, because obviously it's what we use as a bit of a gauge to see who's made the improvements, but all the way through testing, all the way through the practice sessions, the qualifying sessions, the super pole session, you're looking to see who's got that like ultimate one lap pace. And then suddenly you get into the eight hours and it's completely irrelevant. It's not about doing 206s or trying to get into the 205s it's about just grinding out 207s all the way if you can lap the whole race in the 207s you're pretty much going to win the race but it's just a question of can you do that Yamaha has shown they can do that no one else has shown they can do it there has to be something said too for you know keeping the band together as it were having the same riders the same team that have that winning pedigree and having 
you know, the institutional knowledge on how to win at Suzuka. Because like you said, it's, it's so much more than just putting out the fastest lap time. It's about having three riders who can be consistent and who can be safe, not crash, keep the bike upright, because that's what wins the race for you at the end of the day is that consistency. And then having the team around them to facilitate that consistency and that depth of, of play. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that go into that as well. It's uh, which riders can work well together. It's which riders can adapt to another rider's settings. It's about finding the right package between three riders to just allow them to work together. You need to pretty much check your ego at the door. It's not about you being fastest. It's about over the course of eight hours getting the best result. And one of the best examples of that is actually Michael Vandermark. Vandermark won this race I think his first race win at the eight hours was in 2013. And uh, Mark that, that year he went out, he did one stint, I think, and he realized the bonus check and, and your winner's check was the exact same whether you did four hours or one hour. So he was pretty happy just to do the one hour. He was able just to understand what it was to be part of a team. And that's been key since he's moved all his way through the career, particularly in the last couple of years at Yamaha, because he jumped onto the R1 and you're jo- you're joining a team that has Alex Lowe's and uh, Katz Nakasuga, two really experienced eight-hour riders. They've won the race, they've been teammates, and suddenly Vandermark came into the mix on that, and uh, he was replacing Paulus Spagaro, and he came into the mix, and suddenly he had to just make sure that he could be part of that winning team. How did he do that? He did it by not riding that much because he wasn't as fast as the other guys. And as hard as it was to believe for anyone, because Vandermark, obviously over the years, we've been able to see how fast he is in a superbike. It took him time to get up to speed on the eight-hour spec bike with Bridgestone tires, bigger fuel load, and having just to ride differently for it. And uh, one of the big changes that we've seen in the last few years is how Yamaha have tried to adapt the bike to Vandermark because Vandermark's six foot tall, he's six inches taller than Nagasuga. So suddenly you have to have a bike that's a little bit more adaptable for Vandermark. But what's actually quite funny about it is that uh, Vandermark went out, he had a test on the bike and he said, oh, this bike, I need to move the handlebars forward. I need to move the foot pegs backwards. I need to create more space on the bike. And the team said, no, no, this is the way you have to ride it because Nakasuga can only can only work in this operating window. So Vandermark had to find a way to get himself really small on the bike. And obviously he was slow on the bike. He wasn't comfortable. But whenever he got to test the bike on his own, he was able to push everything out. And the team were able to see, oh, well, Vandermark, he can go a lot faster if he's comfortable on the bike. Last year with the eight hours, Nakasuga was out injured after a crash in uh, the Super Pole session and suddenly Yamaha had to make the bike a little bit more adjustable for Vandermark and uh, bring it a little bit closer to how he would need to ride the bike because he was going to do four hours on the bike and uh, they pushed the bars out a little bit Alex Lowe's was left stretching a a little bit more on the bike to try and uh, get himself into the right riding position but suddenly when Nakasuga went back onto the bike he wasn't any slower so the team were able to say, all right, well, like a fully fit Nakasuga can do the same lap times with the bars closer or further away. So now for the eight hour bike, they've actually got the bike a lot more comfortable for Vandermark just because Nakasuga is a little bit, uh, he's now found that he can be a little bit more adaptable to the settings. Hmm. You touched on it for a second there, Steve. I wonder if you can break down the differences uh, between like a Suzuka bike and a World Superbike. You, you know, there's obviously... Bridgestone tires makes a big change to it. You're going to have more fuel because you need the endurance fuel tank. What other accommodations to, on the technical side are teams having to do? Well, the biggest one 
is the Bridgestone tires. That changes everything about what you need to do with the bike. And the Yamaha in World SBK trim, it's got Olin suspension in um, endurance spec Suzuka for the Suzuka eight hours. It's got uh, Kiaba suspension as well. So it changes that. So there's changes that have to be made to adjust to those suspensions. Uh, and then also you've got the electronics take on a bigger role. How you ride the bike is completely different. So therefore you have to set everything up a lot more differently. With the Bridgestone front tire, you can let that bike do anything you want. And one of the best examples of that was actually around at the Dunlop curve. I think it's turn eight at Suzuka, the really long left-hander that goes up the hill towards the Degner corners. And I was standing on the inside of that corner and uh, I was taking photos and you're looking at the uh, Bridgestone shod bikes, whether it's the Suzuki, the Yamaha, the Honda, the Kawasaki, whatever it is, they're all able to get their bike right into the curb and be really aggressive with the bike when they want to be. I looked at some of the Bridgestone bikes. Michael Laverty was on Bridgestones that year and he was, I think it was about two and a half meters wider than the Bridgestones because through the long left-hander, he couldn't get his bike hooked back up to the inside line just because the tires kept pushing them out. So if you look at a World Superbike spec machine, it's been developed around Bridgestone tire. It's been developed around Pirelli tires, whereas the Suzuka bike has been developed around Bridgestone tires. And even just in that one corner, you could see a big difference in terms of how you have to ride them. What about on the, the electronics front? Uh, is there any differences between the endurance spec now and the World Superbike spec uh, bikes? Well, the one thing about World SBK is that the spec of electronics is actually probably about as advanced as you get in any class of racing. MotoGP's obviously got the same ECU that's available for all the teams, the same electronics, and you just have to be able to find a way to maximize the settings available to you. In World SBK and in endurance racing, it is possible to have a stock ECU on the bike, but all of the top teams have their own uh, proprietary electronics kits on it. And uh, while most of the teams will still be using Magneti Morelli, there are some other... Uh, electronics units in operation for it but it really is a case of it's just how smart are your engineers how good can they code and then how well are they able to adapt that onto the bike mm. that's interesting because that was kind of the storyline uh, a couple of years ago and you know the honda world superbike team was using magnetic morelli but the world superbike team was using cosworth i believe yeah and uh, that was when we saw tenkate made the switch from Cosworth to Morelli in the middle of the season. They made the change after the first two rounds, really competitive in the first two rounds. And then once they made the change, they had so much to try and learn that they really struggled to adapt to it. Yeah, but that change was predicated on what they saw happening in, in Suzuka, wasn't it? Uh, well, it was a bit of a strange situation because at that stage, there was more and more involvement coming in from Honda into the Tenkade operation. When you talk to people from Tenkade now, they'll talk about how they were being handcuffed and what they were able to do and in different elements that they had to run the bike and different decisions that were made. Now they've got a lot more freedom because they're a fully independent team. And uh, definitely the change from Cosworth Electronics wasn't one that Tenkade wanted to make. Well, their freedom has led them down to a path of running a Yamaha instead of a Honda. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> Tenkade, of course, obviously, they've always been like a big tuning firm in Europe. And uh, for a long time, whether you were club racing or whether you were racing on the world stage, if you wanted to have a chance of winning, you really needed to have an engine that was tuned by Tenkade. Yeah, yeah. We see that the TT as well. The, you see Tenkade engines in there and uh, another series. Switching gears a little bit because we talked about Honda. This is going to be kind of a big year for them. They're one to watch out for. Yeah, this is a massive year for Honda because they're under a lot of pressure. They like they own Suzuka. 
That's their <laughs> test track. <laughs> it's literally, they literally own it. They've seen Yamaha come in and just make it their track and win the biggest race of the year. And if you're HRC's vice president and you're coming in and you're seeing, because HRC is quite a strange one where the vice president is the guy with all the power. And they, they've got this strange situation where suddenly in their racing department, shit, we're just not getting the job done. And Yamaha's come in and they've been able to dominate. And now you really need to answer back. So what are Honda doing to answer back? They're making big changes to that bike because what's the, the key thing to winning in endurance racing? It's about being able to manage your fuel. It's about being able to try and eke out a little bit of an advantage in any area you can. And the Honda's big advantage is that they can usually go an extra lap on each tank. But the big thing for this year is they also seem to have made a big step with the performance of their bike, particularly with Takahashi on that machine looks really good in the tests. He was down in the 206s very consistently and uh, at the end of a stint just dropping himself into the 207s. So he looks really good on that bike, whether or not with Stefan Bradl and with uh, Ryanichi Kianari on the other two uh, seats whether or not there'll be a strong enough rider lineup for the full eight hours remains to be seen but they've definitely made a big step forward tell me more about the bike that honda's developing because they're they're definitely changing equipment up a little bit here not not quite to the rumors of of the internet the ever coming v4 fireblade that we've heard for about for the last 20 years but they are making changes to the cbr 1000 r well they've definitely made changes to find an awful lot more performance and that's where i'll be quite interested whenever i go on the there's a test day as well before the eight hours this year and uh, on that day i'm quite keen just to go down and see what exactly they have on the honda because in world sbk the only changes we've really seen are to try and make it a little bit more adjustable try and make it a little bit more comfortable for leon camier to sit on the bike and fit on the bike but they haven't really made any performance gains so far this season so that's where suddenly at the eight hours maybe we see a lot of new parts on that bike compared to what we have in world sbk and if that's the case suddenly we might be able to see a situation where those parts start to filter down from the port of Mao round onwards the big question i have to ask steve though is, is it going to be enough for honda because watching the race last year it was it was very intriguing to see the fuel efficiency play a role the honda sips the fuel whereas the yamaha tends to guzzle it and to see kind of like the two differences in those strategies but it was very clear that they were let's be kind and say a step below where the other factories were at is it going to be enough to to make that change are you going to put any money on honda on race day i'm a terrible gambler and i've got a <laughs> horrendous addiction for it so thanks for that bringing money into the into the <laughs> equation gents but uh, now nah, like the honda honda needs to find at least a second a lap like last year was a genuine couple of seconds a lap off the pace they struggled with their strategy as well they made mistakes through the course of the race Pit, um, safety cars did bring them back into the equation but really they were well off the pace in last year's race that's where suddenly for this year if they have made this step forward in terms of their performance they might well have a chance about being able to have a good result but it'll be interesting to see whether or not they're still able to do that extra lap on a full fuel tank compared to the compared to their rivals because you have to make up an awful lot of time in the pits to make that strategy work yeah Talk to me about riders because last year we were supposed to see Leon Camier and because of injuries that ended up being PJ Jacobson, uh, who's on the bike for this year. And, you know, is that a team that can 
challenge against the kind of the super teams that Yamaha and Kawasaki are, are, are bringing to the forefront. Well, it's Takahashi, Bradle and Kyo on the bike. So it's three experienced riders. But uh, other than Takahashi, I'm not too sure how well Kianari and Bradle will do on the bike. Kianari's got a ton of Suzuka experience, rode really well last year on, the, on a Pirelli shod Marowaki, but suddenly to jump onto the full HRC bike with all the pressure that comes from that, that's going to be a big ask for Keo, but uh, definitely for any favourite son of HRC, you'd certainly look to fancy your chances about being able to give a good result if you're a Keo. Stefan Bradle is the first time that uh, he's tackled the eight hours. He was supposed to do it a few years ago, but uh, had an ear infection at the time. There was also a lot of talk that uh, that ear infection came as a direct result of getting shouted at by quite a few HRC bosses at one of the tests. <laughs> and uh, so for Stefan, this is a really big event to make sure that he's able to give a good account of himself. But that's their three riders. For me, if I look at Honda, I also think that the Hark Pro team's got a really good chance of having a good result. They've got uh, Javi Fares on the bike. Domi Agaters are always good in uh, Suzuka eight hours trim. And they've also got Rio Mizano the uh, really highly regarded Japanese superbike rider. And the thing with Honda that's always so in interesting for me is you have the, the specialty teams and you have the, uh, the endurance team, the TSR, um, which I believe won the endurance championship last year. So uh, I'm trying to remember what their Suzuka result was. I think it was respectable, but winning the championship, you have to, you have to factor them into it. Yeah, the TSR team is really interesting as well because they usually always have a very strong rider lineup, as you said, Jensen. They won the endurance championship last year, and uh, for this year, they'll once again feel very confident going into the race. Last year, they had the exact same spec of bike, pretty much, as the leading HRC team. That's what's usually quite interesting about the eight hours is that Honda try and make sure that as many of their top tier bikes are available to teams that they can be competitive at the eight hours. Everyone's going to be on Bridgestone tires if you're at the front. So for the TSR team, they'll be able to feel that they've got a real chance about having another strong result at the eight hours and just continuing to show that what they've done over the last couple of years in the Endurance World Championship. You said something really quick right there, and I, I want to press on it because I think it's really important. You talked about the front teams. You talked about the front teams being on Bridgestone tires. Explain to us why that's so important if you want to win the Suzuka eight hours. Well, it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago whenever I was saying that if you want to be able to carry the optimum lines through all the corners, if you want to have the confidence in the heavy braking zones, you need to have the Bridgestone tire. Basically, there's never been any world-class rider in the last 10, 15 years that hasn't been able to just say that they love riding the Bridgestone front tire. It's a front-dominated uh, tire manufacturer it's such a strong front tire that riders are able to break super deep into corners super aggressively and just throw the bike in and it just seems to always give them and inspire them a bit more confidence and that's why riders can just jump on to some of the suzuka spec bikes and bradley ray is a good example of this last year he jumped onto a bridgestone shod bike and suddenly whenever he went back to ride pirelli's in the british championship he's really struggled to try and find his footing to try and calibrate himself again to to the Pirelli tires and uh, the feeling that they gave a rider. Yeah, it's interesting. I've talked to uh, a rival uh, tire manufacturer about Suzuka and and the the challenges that that race faces and you know they they explain it as like such a special event 
And obviously, Bridgestone, being Japanese-based, has a lot of laps around Suzuka, has a lot of experience, uh, kind of a, a home ground, uh, home field advantage. Um, but it's interesting to see the abrasion, the heat that comes, because we have to understand, like, this is the middle of summer in Japan where it's, you know, for our American listeners, it's over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It's super humid. It's, I don't know, what is that in Celsius, 35 up? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it, it's so hot. You have riders jumping into pools with with ice in it to cool off after their stints, and that is a very um, challenging thing when you're going to run a, a race for eight hours on on a set of tires, and and you know, obviously you're swapping tires throughout the different stints. But to put those kind of grueling laps into a tire, and, and for whatever reason, Bridgestone has it figured out, and we see other manufacturers kind of still trying to crack that code. Yeah, I remember whenever I was living in Tokyo at one stage, just on project whenever I was an engineer and it was in the middle of summer. It was at eight hours time, actually, and it was 100 degrees and 100 percent humidity. And uh, I had to get a train every day. And at the walk from the end of the train was probably about a mile from the train station to the office. And I had to have a spare pair of clothes every day so that I was able to walk down from the train station to the office and then get to the office and just try and just get changed out of everything I was wearing because it was just so sweaty from just that one mile. Now imagine getting onto a bike wearing full leathers, full kit and having the stress of all that pressure from a manufacturer that you have to win this race. And then it's in the same conditions. So for the eight hours, literally from the first time that riders jump onto the bike, when they get to the end of that stint, it's, an hour long stint they just their their eyes are on stalks they can probably you're just that uh, dehydrated that uh, you need to get yourself into the plunge pool you need to make sure you're able to cool yourself off as quick as possible try and bring your core temperature down because your lungs are burning when you're on the bike every breath you take is a big exertion so you need to be able to recover really quickly from that so that's why a lot of the science that went into trying to figure out how to get electrolytes back into the body to try and cool down core temperature was really important particularly for a race like the eight hours yeah there's nothing about this that my scandinavian lineage uh, sounds like it would enjoy uh the motorbike part you the, the motorbike part absolutely but the uh we're, we're not built for heat we're built for cold um how do you think irishmen feel yeah, the, the Suzuka is always a race I've wanted to go attend in person. And I think that might be something I just do once. <laughs> but um, moving on, Steve, uh, I'm not sure I'm convinced on your uh, bets for Honda winning because I can see in your eye that's where you're going to put your money. But my money is on the Kawasaki team because they came so very close to winning last year. And they, they seem like they've got a recipe brewing that could be give Yamaha a run for their money. And, and for this year, it looks like they've, they've taken the next step to making that happen. Yeah, I'm still going to put my money on Yamaha. I don't know where you're getting this whole Honda story. No, 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 story. no. You told me you were going give to me, give me $5 on Honda. Yeah. Yeah. It was get, before the show. I'll give you a 50 to 1 on Honda. <laughs> but uh, for, um, for the race, but Kawasaki are going to be strong. Last year, they took pole position. They've got Jonathan Ray, four-time world champion. Let's be honest, soon to be five-time world champion on the basis of what we've seen recently in World SBK. You've got Leon Haslam, the reigning British superbike champion. Top Rack Raz Gadioglu, the coming star of world superbikes. That's a hell of a three-man team to put onto any sort of a bike race. But I still think that even with 
Kawasaki, they've scrapped the whole Team Green thing. It's now 100% the uh, Kawasaki Racing Team, KRT, the Provac Racing Run Squad from World SPK. They've got all the big hitters here for the eight hours, and they're going to do everything they can to win that one race. But until they're able to prove that they can go through the full eight hours without making mistakes, without any of the hiccups that can occur during an eight-hour race, to show they've got the right strategy and uh, the right ability to understand everything that's happening in the race, Yamaha are going to be the favourites, but uh, Kawasaki definitely are going to go in there and feel that they've got a real chance of winning this race. Correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but Kawasaki's basically just taken the World Superbike team transplanted it over to japan added top rock who's been on fire this season uh in world superbike and said go get it boys that's exactly it and they uh, kawasaki have seen that over the last few years the last let's say seven eight years really they've been the dominant force in world sbk you look back to tom sykes could have won three world championships jonathan ray has won four uh, they've been able to win an awful lot in the british championship the Kawasaki's been the best superbike in the world over that eight-year period, but it doesn't have the success in the eight hours. How do you achieve that success? Bring in the best. Bring in the guys that are winning those world championships. Bring in the team that are working together every week. Bring in your riders from the world championship. And adding Top Rack into that equation is just another sign of the real strength and depth that Kawasaki can have. There's no excuses to that either. If you don't win, then look for your solution elsewhere the one good thing about that for most of the uh provac squad is that unlike their japanese counterparts they're not going to be getting p45s for not winning the suzuka eight hours they're just going to get it where well we just move on to the next thing that's out in portamao over the next test and then moving on to getting back to racing but for kawasaki if you've made this investment if you've gone to all this trouble and like Literally everyone that's involved with Kawasaki in the World SBK Championship that I've talked to seems to be going out to Japan. So it's a massive operation and they're leaving as few stones unturned as possible that like last year they had Pereriba and Marcel Dwinker were there as two of the uh, engineers for the project. So they're the two crew chiefs for KRT. They brought as many people as possible last year to the event, but it wasn't a KRT squad it was still the team green with a lot of japanese management in place this year it's the roaders are running the show and uh, they're basically going to make sure that everything goes according to plan that makes sense though if you think about it because kawasaki in a larger scheme in terms of all motorcycle racing or at least all motorcycle road racing they've really made their investment in world superbike they said we're not going to go race in motor gp we're going to take out our motor gp squad we're going to divert those funds to world superbike and Truthfully, the the dividends have paid off. You know, you, we see the results that they've made with Jonathan Ray. We see the results they've made with Tom Sykes. They've been a very dominant force in World, in World Superbike because of this. And from my perspective, it just seems like a good investment or a better return on that investment to say, okay, yeah, this is a winning package. We invested a lot of money in this. We've invested a lot of development in this. We've invested in riders and personnel. Let's maximize the return. Let's use them in, you know, endurance. Let's use them in suzuka where this is a race that really is important like kawasaki wins at suzuka that's gonna be a huge game changer i think i'd have to go look at like the record books to find out what it was but yamaha and honda dominate this race suzuki gets in there every now and then but kawasaki doesn't really have like a a reputation for winning at at suzuka like the other brands do 
And that would be a big upset. Like you said, like this is this is Honda's home track. It's eating Honda alive that Yamaha has, has won the last four races in a row. But man, can you imagine if Kawasaki won? Yeah, and that's the thing. You're going back to the start of the 90s. It was 93 with uh, Aaron Slate and uh, Scott Russell on the bike. Scott Russell, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. That tells you how long ago it was. Scott Russell was on that bike and uh, they were able to win that race. And since then, Kawasaki's had podiums, Haslam's had podiums for them in, in the uh, last few years. But uh, they haven't been able to crack the code of actually winning the race. So as you said, Jensen, this is just a smart move to be able to give yourself the best chance possible of getting a good result in the race. If you can try and maximize your window, that's all you're trying to do. And uh, Kawasaki are certainly giving themselves the best chance of doing that just by bringing across as many of the good people from ProVac as they can. And if they don't win it, you know, they're still able to look at it and say, you know what, at least this year we gave it our best shot. And there'll be some reason that they'll be able to find for why it didn't pay off. You know, if they don't win it, they're also on a bike that is, I'm going to rack my brain on this. It's at least four or five years old, if not older. I mean, the, the current ZX-10R platform, it's a little long in the, in the tooth, you know, so they're kind of punching above their, their uh, expectations on that. How much of an excuse is that, though, when the R1 still a bike that was originally oh, that's fair. released in 14? How... This will lead into where I wanted to go next. How much of an excuse is it when you have a brand new superbike in 2017 and you still haven't really made a, a crack into Suzuka? Because that's what Suzuki's looking at. Yeah, well, the one thing for Suzuki is that they just keep making mistakes in the eight hour because they've been fast. But that's where for this year, it's actually really interesting that they're making drastic changes. They don't have Suda on the bike this year. He's been there super fast guy over the last few years, the guy that whenever they get to the Super Bowl session, you want to have him on your bike. They've dropped him because he's made too many mistakes in the last few years. Sylvain Gintoli, former Superbike World Champion, he's on the bike for another year, but uh, he'll be partnered up with Yuki Takahashi, a real blast from the past that no one can really understand why Yoshimuri have gone with him on the bike. And uh, then they've also got... Uh, Watanabe, who had been on the uh, Kawasaki last year, Watanabe was one of the weak links in the Kawasaki Team Green operation last year, and now suddenly he's on the uh, on the Yoshimuri Suzuka bike. It's a little bit of a scandal in a way. Do you know what? What's going to be quite interesting is whenever the S Pulse team start this weekend, have a strong have a strong pace, and end up. And I would be very surprised if they don't end up beating the Yoshimuri team. That's that'd be an interesting thing to see because traditionally the Yoshimura Suzuki team, that's the I wouldn't say they're a factory team, but they're as close to being a factory team that you can get without coming out of the factory itself. Right. Um, it's interesting to see that kind of shift. I don't know what that is, Steve. Yeah. The one thing is that Yosh is the factory team for what I like, whether or not it's dolled up in such a way that uh, it says it on the side. Everyone knows that Yoshimori is the performance arm for a Suzuki racing bike. And we see it in Moto America with Tony Elias and Josh Heron. They're racing the Yoshimori Suzuki. You see it in uh, BSB where uh, Bradley Ray is on a, he's on a build-based Suzuki, but it's still got a lot of Yosh parts on it. And uh, at Suzuka, it's always been the, the lead Suzuki bike. Right. That's a, good that's, way, that's a good way of putting it. It's been the lead Suzuki. 
Yeah, and I don't think that's going to be the case this year because no. we've already seen that uh, Tommy Bridewell and Bradley Ray have been confirmed on that team for next year. And uh, I'm not 100% sure who the third rider is, but uh, I think Suda has been riding that bike. So you've got the guy that suddenly he's got a chip in his shoulders to go out and prove the uh, Yoshimuri team wrong that uh, he was strong enough to lead an operation at Suzuka and suddenly he's going to have two really fast BSB riders as a teammate. Hmm. Steve, how do you see this all planning out when we get to uh, the race day? I think it's going to be a really interesting qualifying and Super Bowl session and it's going to be a load of bikes really close and competitive but if I was to set the market right now I'd still have Yamaha as my favourites. I'd look at the uh, Provec KRT uh, Kawasaki as your second favourite. And then you're looking at a real toss-up between the HRC squad or S-Pulse, I think, are going to be really strong and put themselves into a position to go one better than last year when they finished fourth. But really, it's just going to come down to who avoids making the big mistakes. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the battle between Yoshimura and S-Pulse right now as I'm sitting here I think S-Pulse are going to start as the favourite to win that it's going to be interesting to see what happens between Hark Pro and uh, the Red Bull Honda the HRC operation and also with the likes of TSR and uh, a couple of other Honda teams to see how they all factor in any wild cards we should be keeping an eye, an eye out for well it'll all, it'll all come down to who's able to get different riders on their bikes if we've got any we had last year guys were running the Ducati twin this year you could be able to run the V4 or and it'd be interesting to see whether or not anyone's able to take a bit of a flyer on that we've seen in the past uh, different teams particularly from the endurance world championship able to put themselves into contention and uh, the Yars team obviously on are going to be really strong they'll be on the number seven which is uh, I think it's Brock Parks Nicola Canapa and Marvin Fritz on that bike so they're going to be really good and uh, the same for any of the other endurance world championship teams that are able to run on Bridgestone tires. I was just reading something the other day from the Italian press, making some speculations about seeing the Ducati V4R out there. It'd be very interesting to see it. Ducati has been a brand that really hasn't been a part of Suzuka. It'd be an interesting part of their story if they got on board with something like that. Cause uh, we've seen RSV4s out there. We've seen, um, I'm trying to think, I think we've seen some Buells out there, some EBRs. You see, like like you mentioned, the the occasional Ducati twin in the lineup, but uh, judging from what we've seen in the World Superbike paddock, the Ducati V4R has uh, quite the horsepower advantage. Now, like we said, like you got to put a whole team around it, you got to put a trio of riders on it. You've got a, a lot more than just having like a, a fast motor to go into a winning Suzuki team or winning Suzuka team. But it is intriguing that. You know, we, we do have some manufacturers that are underrepresented at this race. Yeah, and the big thing for Ducati ever since Gigi Delinia came in was he wanted to right the ship initially. He wanted to make sure that Ducati got back on course. But even more importantly in recent years, he wants to make sure Ducati are doing things that they've never done before, that they're winning races that they would have looked as, as being as having no right to win in the past. They had no right to even attempt Suzuka with the V-Twin. It just wasn't a reliable package for an endurance race by all accounts whereas now with the v4r you've got a perfect package to be able to go out and race endurance racing you've got a perfect bike for it as well because it's a bike that every rider jumps onto and what do they say they say 
oh, the power delivery is perfect. It's really linear all the way through the gearbox. Eugene Laverty said that the only reason he attempted to race at Donington Park in the Gunasika was because this was the easiest superbike that he's ever ridden. It was easy on the rider. And Eugene has seven fractures in his right hand, fractures in his left hand, and he still thought that he could ride a Ducati V4R, whereas he said if he was on any other superbike that he'd ridden in the past, he would have just said, like, I can't ride until after the summer break. The Ducati could be an ideal endurance racing bike, and Gigi Delinia would love nothing more than to go over to Japan and plant a Tricolore in the middle of Suzuka. Yeah, that would be an amazing story. That'd be amazing. Like, I can't even fathom it, to be be truthfully honest. But to bring things full circle to where we started the show, you know, we're seeing the, the star for Suzuka rise. We're seeing that this is becoming a, a more and more important uh, race for the manufacturers. Again, it's becoming more and more important for the FIM endurance world championship. It's the final round of the season, which means it's going to, to a large extent dictate who wins the championship. Um, and we're seeing it becoming a higher profile event for, for fans outside of Japan. And that only lends itself to being a, a great platform for a brand to come in and, and make a name for itself. It's it's in my mind, it's a lot like the TT, where it's this 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 one special event that is getting like the focus of the world. And you know, truthfully, for for my publication, that's why we're covering it because it, it is such a big deal. It, it it goes beyond just the endurance championship. It goes just beyond the Japanese specialty teams and the specialty riders. It's it's a big deal now. We're seeing world level riders and world level teams participating in it yeah it was a very insular event for a long time and now it has become much more global it's got the full eight hours are live on tv in the uk and uh, same in, in other countries as well it's suddenly become properly big business and what could be better than to see ducati make an effort to try and go to japan and try and beat the japanese manufacturers at their own game in their own playground uh Gigi, will want to do it it's just a case of whether or not they're able to put the right package together but i'd love to see something like where they just went out and they had for instance their top moto gp top world sbk and a uh, top bsb rider on uh, a suzuki eight hours bike because i'd like to see something along the lines of davi bautista and scott redding out trying to figure out a way to ride that endurance bike yeah that would be intriguing i'd love to see more brands get involved um, I think I think there's an argument to be made that Aprilia's MotoGP dollars could be better spent at Suzuka. Um, you know, I, I hope that's the case as as the years tick by because uh, it's kind of an exciting time for this race, and uh, I hope to see more uh, manufacturers involved with it, more high level riders with it. You know, I, I was thinking back how long ago was it that Valentino Rossi and Colin Edwards were on a dream team together. Um, but you know, the, there was a point in time when that was the level of of competition, and we're kind of getting back to it. Uh, I don't think we're that far away from from seeing MotoGP teams and World Superbike. I mean, we already have World Superbike teams. We already have some some of the satellite MotoGP riders in there. Um, but it's intriguing. It's it's certainly an intriguing time. Yeah, that was one when you had Rossi and Edwards, and then for the next year, Rossi got replaced by the Girocato on the bike. Yeah. So suddenly, for <laughs> that was probably the moment then when it kind of took a turn, then wasn't it? Yeah, and that was that was that was a moment where again another Japanese superstar 
was emerging and you were able to put him onto that bike alongside Colin Edwards. He delivered on it, won the 250 World Championship the year before and then was in the middle of his MotoGP campaign at that stage. But from that point onwards, it did start to become a little bit of a struggle to try and get more and more world-class and international riders into the field. If you look over really the period from round about that time when it was Cato and Edwards all the way through until you got to the likes of Jonathan Ray winning his first Suzuka 8 hour in 2012 nearly every rider that won was a Japanese rider except for Carlos Checa the Spaniard yeah no it's interesting that now I think about the timeline ability it it coincides quite well actually with the economic recession and and kind of the contrition that we saw in the the motorcycle industry and then 2012 that's about when things started getting better again but that's also right away when you know Kawasaki was really firing uh, full force in its world superbike program and had that that uh you know as their main focus so it's interesting it's an interesting dynamic to think about the uh the external factors to the race well steve i think that just about wraps us up for this preview of this year's suzuka eight hours uh i think as we've said it's going to be an interesting race i'm really curious to see what the results are you will be on the ground at suzuka giving a, a first-hand accounting of it and we'll do a follow-up show once the race is done yeah yeah i'm always just looking for punishment and a nice trip out to japan in the middle of the summer holidays can't really beat that just think of all the weight you're gonna lose from just sweating yeah i definitely need to lose a few pounds so uh maybe suzuka is the key for that no I, i'm really looking forward to this race probably because i get to stay at home but it's going to be a good year there's a lot of good uh storylines to follow throughout the the build-up to the suzuka eight hours and um yeah i'll be curious to hear what you uh report from uh trackside yeah i'm looking forward to it it's always been a, a race that i always watched whenever i was a kid and i uh, always wanted to get to them whenever i started to go to races and i've been lucky enough to go the last two years has been my third eight hours and uh yeah, it's a really special race, a special racetrack as well. It's a proper old school racetrack. There's no service road all the way around it, so there's certain sections where, and this is this uh, is totally against everything I believe, Jensen, but there's certain sections where you're probably better off wearing pairs of jeans rather than shorts because all of the reeds are overgrown onto the... Uh, onto the guardrails you're trying to work your way through nettles and weeds there's snakes in the uh, infield section and uh, you're just trying to do it so that you can get like a couple of pictures and then you re you realize oh, i could probably just go to a different corner and it'd be much easier yeah there, there's no service roads but there is a ferris wheel that's it and uh, the ferris wheel does make for great pictures as well but uh, i did find out one interesting thing in the lead up to the eight hours i was talking to keen ari just about uh you know life in general and i was asking like what, what are you afraid of and he said uh, i'm afraid of heights and i and i said uh what, what do you mean and uh, he said you know like when you go to the roller coasters with your kids and uh you know they're okay because you can get to the top and, and you can see everything that's happening and you know it, it's not nice but i can get to the bottom and i can just get through it and it's it's easy because it's only for one minute but when i get on the big ferris wheel i get very scared because it goes on for so long so the Ferris wheel at Suzuka is where I'm going to do every interview possible with Kianari this year. It's a little weird to think about a motorcycle racer who's afraid of a Ferris wheel. It seems a little, um, let's say, disproportionate. Just a little, but uh, Kio's had some big crashes, so he's come down from a fair height at times. <laughs> Maybe that's what the fair heights come from. That's fair, that's fair. 
Well, we should remind our listeners to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are the Paddock Pass Pod. On Facebook, we are facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. If you listen to us via Apple's podcasting app, please leave us a rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. And it obviously gives us great feedback on how to keep giving you two-wheeled content. And uh, if you like the show, support us on Patreon. We'll actually, I believe, be sending uh, special audio clips from Suzuka to our Patreon listeners. Yeah, Steve's giving me a look right now. He didn't know he was signed up for that, but you absolutely are, sir. Um, we are doing that for all of our, our MotoGP and Superbike and obviously Suzuka and TT. Uh, we've been doing some special one-off races, but we get uh, special audio content for those that support the show, and we greatly appreciate your support on Patreon. With that, Steve, uh, thank you for sitting down and talking to me about one of my favorite races. Enjoy your time in Japan, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, it'll be a bit different now the next time that uh, we're talking as well, Jensen. This time, it's obviously uh, we're talking to each other face-to-face. Next time, it'll be over uh, an internet connection with me sitting really exhausted in a Japanese hotel, and uh, you probably just waking up after watching the eight hours as well. Yeah, I'll be on my couch, so that'll be working out just fine for me. But uh, we appreciate your hard work, Steve. You are a true scholar, gentleman, and race enthusiast. I'm definitely the last. (laughs) All right, sir. I'll see you out there. Thanks very much, Jens.